Open our hearts and soul to your word. Let your word reside in our hearts and take root there. Help us to understand. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and Genesis 2, verse 15. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susan, for reading. Well, happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're enjoying uh, the weekend. We're going to spend some time. Because it's Labor Day, it seemed really fitting. I've been wanting for years to spend some focused time thinking about how our faith affects and influences our work. And Labor Day seemed like the perfect weekend to start thinking about faith and work. And so that's what we're starting this morning. We're going to consider what does it look like to express our faith at work? What does it look like to consider that God is at work? And there's an obvious double meaning, and it's intentional. That one, God is at work, which means that God is always working. But God is also at work in that he is with us, so that when we are at work, those of us who work, he is there too. And we've got to say at the outset that we're going to define work very, very broadly. But I've found that over, especially it's you know, funny God's timing, over the past even just couple of weeks, I've had a number of conversations with a number of you asking some variation of this same question. How do I express my faith in my place of work, in my workplace? How do I be a Christian in my workplace? Uh, For instance, when my bosses want me to just very kind of conveniently forget to mention a product change, because if we make a big deal out of this, it might actually hurt some of our sales. My bosses just, just want me to keep quiet about it. I had another conversation where somebody asked, how do I be a Christian in my workplace, this person is a teacher, when the administration of the school where I teach insists on policies that I actually think are going to harm students in the long run? How do I express my faith at, in that kind of a setting? There's some really, really good questions. And I love thinking through these questions, and we're going to spend the next several weeks thinking about questions like these. We won't get directly into those kinds of questions this morning. This morning, in order to to get to those, we have to first build a foundation. So think of this morning as foundation work. And what we're doing this morning, in a sense, is picking up where we left off just a month, a little over a month ago. This summer, we spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis, really in the first three chapters, the first three pages of our Bible, examining what God is doing there. And in a sense, this summer picks up where we left off a couple weeks ago. I got to give a quick disclaimer, by the way. This, so this morning's sermon is going to be a really high altitude flyover. 
Uh, because we, don't, we just don't have time and it's a communion Sunday, so I've got to preach shorter, fat chance. Uh, I've got to actually oversimplify some extra things. Uh, it'll feel like taking a really big bite and having a short amount of time to chew on it. And I know, and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but hang with me. Hang with me, because it's going to be really important to lay the foundation for where we're going the rest of this series. Now, I mentioned that this is kind of a continuation of our series in Genesis. So think back with me. If you were here especially, and if not, I'll give you a quick recap. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see God creating everything that exists. And when he created everything, one of the things that we saw this summer, so importantly, is that what he's doing is taking the chaos present in the whole universe and bringing it into order. He's bringing beauty out of the disorder and and order out of the chaos. And he's not just doing this kind of for kicks or because it really matters to him to have like an exceptionally organized garage or anything like that. No, he's, he's creating this order for a key reason, which is that he wants to be with us. The whole Bible, as it turns out, is a story of God who longs to be with us. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. And in fact, this is so important because what's especially striking and in some ways revolutionary about the Christian faith is that God does not make us reach up to him. God reaches down to us to be with us. God does not make us try to reach up to him so that we can be with him in heaven. The whole story of the Bible from page one to the last page is a story of a God who actually reaches down to be with us here on earth. And he gives us a job, which is to make this earth and this world a place, in a sense, where he can be present. So now we get to start looking at our work and and how do we actually participate with God in that. Like I said, we're going to define the word work very loosely. So if you work a nine to five, obviously this applies to you. But if you're a student, this applies to you. If you're enjoying retirement, and how in the world is it that everybody who retires tells me I'm busier now than I ever was before, but if you're enjoying being busier now in retirement than you ever have before, this applies to you. If you stay at home with young kids, I mean, Lord knows that's work. (laughs) This applies to you. Wherever you find yourself on a Tuesday morning or a Thursday afternoon, in a sense, this applies to every single one of us at every point in life. And the thing that we find that's so important to remember is God wants to be present with us wherever we find ourselves. The story of God's presence, which is the story of the Bible, it begins on page one. Let me just read a couple, just again, we're building foundations here, but to remind you that God wants to be very, very present with us. In Genesis 2, verse 7, we didn't read this this morning, but in Genesis 2, verse 7, it's a famous verse, it says this, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the earth was just a dust bowl and a stiff breeze picked up and it swirled a bunch of dust around and magically all of a sudden the man came alive. No, actually the Hebrew word says the Lord God formed the man. 
formed the man. Like a potter forms a lump of clay into a cup or a bowl or whatever it is that a potter is making. There is a physicality in that word. There's an intimacy in the word. It's as if God's hands are dripping with clay as he's fashioning humans. And he breathes into the man's nostrils the breath of life. It's, it's like he's almost giving him CPR mouth to mouth to bring him to life. There is a physicality and an intimacy that the author of Genesis wants to get across here. We see it once again in Genesis 3, God's very unique presence. It says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He's literally there in the Garden of Eden. God is literally just taking a walk. There's another paraphrase of the Bible called the message. It's not exactly a translation, but it's meant, its intent is to, is to help modern readers and listeners to hear the words of Scripture in a similar way that ancient hearers would have heard Scripture when they first heard it. And Eugene Peterson, the author, puts it this way. He says, God was strolling in the garden in the evening breeze. From the very beginning of creation, God has been present on earth and he longs to be present with us and we see early on in Genesis that God gives us a job that's connected to his presence actually we talked a little bit about this a month and a half ago so I won't get too deeply into it but there's a sense and this is a hard one this is a hard one for me too but there's a sense especially in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates the earth and somehow he doesn't finish his work We get two clues about this. So let me, start, let me help you see where I get this from. First, God tells the very first humans, this is Genesis 1. We did read this as the scripture reading this morning. He tells the very first humans, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. Which implies that there were parts of the original creation after God made it that still needed to be subdued, that still needed to be tamed or domesticated. They were wild. There's meaningful work. The second clue is this, that God gives a similar command in Genesis 2, verse 15. This was part of our scripture reading this morning as well. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. I know the translation we use says work it and take care of it means the same thing. I'm going to use work and keep just because it's a little shorter and easier to remember. The Lord God put the man in the garden to work and to keep it. If God put humans in the garden, Adam and Eve, and said, work it, but there was no work to be done, what use is that? Now, I know it's, it's challenging, right, to think, like, how would God make something and not finish it? And that, that in some ways may feel like it contradicts some of what we thought we knew. But think with me. If God had finished his work, if everything was just perfect and needed no, no more input, and then scripture very clearly says that he gave Adam and Eve work to do, then their work is pointless. It would be no different than God telling Adam and Eve, here's a bucket of bricks. Like, take this bucket of bricks and carry it around the building five times. Dig this ditch and then fill it back in again. Like, sure, that's work, but it's pointless. There's no purpose to that kind of work, and therefore, because there's no purpose, there's no dignity to it. God doesn't treat us that way. 
In fact, he invites us to meaningfully participate in his work by subduing and working and keeping and by filling the earth. And it's almost as if the purpose of our work is to make the earth a place where God can be present. That's a second challenging thought. Because it invites this very obvious question, and I hope you're thinking it. It's a very good question. Chris, are you saying that God can't actually be present on earth without us? That God needs us? Because that seems problematic. Haven't you said in sermons before that God doesn't need us? Yes, I have. So how do we reconcile that? Maybe it's helpful to think about it this way. Um, could God do things a different way? I'm, I'm sure he could. Like, he's God. He could can, he can figure it out. But he chooses to work in and through the very people, you and me, whom he has made. Why? Because of love. So think about it this way. If you invite your kid to help you make, bake a batch of cookies, it's a perfect fall. We're getting into winter. It's perfect winter activity. You invite your kid, and so you say, you know, hey, kid, you don't call yourself your kid kid, but you know, you know hey, come help, come help me bake cookies. We're going to bake cookies. I need you to measure three cups of sugar and put it in the mixing bowl. Now, do you need your kid to measure three cups of sugar and put it in the mixing bowl? Well, like, yes and no. Originally, you didn't. In fact, you could have measured three cups of sugar faster and better and more accurately than your three-year-old can measure three cups of sugar. Amen? But now you've invited your kid into your work. Why? Because you love them. And you want them to participate in your work with you because of love. It would not be loving to tell your kid, you sit over there and sit very still and very quietly and watch me while I make cookies. That's not love. Love is saying, hey, come help me and come measure these three cups of sugar, even though I know it's going to take forever and we're going to get more sugar on the countertop than in the mixing bowl. Why? Because it's loving. You gave them a job, a meaningful job, and now you're counting on them because you love them. Do you see? I think maybe it's kind of like that. That God wants to be present with us and he wants to invite us into his work because, precisely because, he's a God of love and he chooses to invite us into his work. And therefore, our job, the work that he has called us to do very meaningfully, is to make earth, the whole creation, a place where he can be present. That's a big claim, I know. Subdue the earth. Work it. Keep it. Roll your sleeves up and get some dirt under your fingernails, God says. He gives us meaningful work so that he can be present. Now, there's a very big problem which comes on page three of the Bible when essentially the very first humans tell God they can do better themselves. God, I can measure the sugar better than you can. We don't need you here. In fact, we don't need you to, to be with us at all. We can do this just fine ourselves. The Bible calls that sin, and it's bad news. The good news is that although humans have turned away from God, God has not turned away from us. Remember? God is constantly reaching down to be with us here on earth. And even when we turn away from him, he does not turn away from us. 
If you flip a few hundred pages further in your Bible, you get to two periods called the Tabernacle Period and the Temple Period. And I'm going to treat them as more or less the same because they're doing some very similar things. The story basically goes like this, and I know I'm oversimplifying, but Israel most, mostly, mostly, ish, mostly turns back to God. And God says, okay, now I want you to build me a temple. Now I want you to build me a temple. And I'll tell you, basically, the rest of this sermon, and in some ways a lot of this sermon series, are stemming from this one discovery about the temple. And it's not my own. I didn't discover this on my own. I've just been reading some other Old Testament experts' work. And their work points me to this that's been stunning for me, that the temple and the Garden of Eden are incredibly similar. If you look at the Hebrew, if you look at the objects in them, if you look at what they're doing, if you look at the people in them, it's almost like the exact same story in a different setting. It's almost as if the Garden of Eden was the first temple. Or maybe you could say the temple was the Garden of Eden 2.0. I'm not sure what, maybe neither. But they're stunningly similar. Most importantly in this, just like in the garden, the temple is where God is present with his people. If you want to meet God, where do you go? You go to the temple, in the Old Testament times, that is. And God was physically present there, just like he was physically present in the Garden of Eden. He was physically present in the temple, in a room in the temple, one little room called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was this room, and it was separated from the rest of the temple and from the rest of the earth by a very thick curtain, And God was present there, just like he was present in Eden. And the Holy of Holies becomes kind of the seam between heaven and earth, between the holy and the ordinary. You know what a seam is. If you you sew, a seam is just where you took two separate pieces of cloth and you sewed them together, and now they're one. If you're a woodworker, a seam is where you took two different boards and you glued them together, and now they're one board of wood. I learned this week fly fishermen talk about seams. I'm not a fly fisherman. Those of you who are can correct me after the sermon. Uh, every, a lot of streams have seams. And that's the seam on one side of the seam, the water flows really fast and it's moving and there's a current. And on the other side of the seam, the water is still, maybe behind a rock. And as it turns out, trout, am I getting this right, fishermen? Trout like that area, that seam between the fast and so you fish the seams. The Garden of Eden, where God was present, was a seam where heaven met earth. The Holy of Holies, where God is present, is a seam where heaven meets earth. And God loves to live in the seam. And just like in the Garden of Eden, God calls his people to make the temple a place where he can be present in that seam. So in the temple, he appoints priests. In the book of Numbers, which most people read and and think is paralyzingly boring, God appoints priests to work in the temple and he gives them a job. Here's the job he tells the priests in the temple. Work it and keep it. Does that language sound familiar? It's exactly what he tells Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.15. The exact same Hebrew words. Work it and keep it. It's God saying, I want to be with you. Therefore, work and keep this place so that I can be with you in the seam. Now here's where I, where I commit a, a terrific injustice and skip over like the, almost the rest of your Bible. But you might be wondering, well, there's, but there's no longer a temple. What happened to the temple? 
The short answer is, I mean, there's, there's historic and kind of sociopolitical reasons why there's no longer a temple that fit into this. The biblical reason why there's no longer a temple is that God never meant for the temple to be a permanent fix. It was always a temporary fix. You can read about this in Hebrews 9 and 10 if you want. We know this because remember God's first command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28? He says, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. God doesn't just want to be present in the garden. He wants to be present in the whole earth. God doesn't just want to be present in the temple. He wants to be present in the whole earth with all people. He wants to fill the earth. Now, how's he going to do that? Again, this is a high-altitude flyover, I know. But let me give you the cliff notes. Early in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells the people who are listening to him at the time that he is the temple, which to an observant ancient Jew is, is heresy. To us, with the benefit of hindsight in the New Testament that helps explain it, it makes perfect sense because we know that Jesus is God himself, God who became flesh. Therefore, what is Jesus but God present with his people? That's the temple, right? It's where God is present with us. But Jesus is also human, and because he's human, he can't be everywhere all at once. Now, remember how I said the Holy of Holies is separated? It's set apart by a very thick curtain. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, tells us that when Jesus died and through his death forgave our sin, the actual curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world was ripped in half, top to bottom, completely separated. Our sin was responsible for the separation, and as Jesus forgives our sin, the curtain gets ripped in half, which means, one, that we all have access to God now. We don't have to go through a priest, but it also means that God's presence is no longer restricted to the holy of holies, he can begin to fill the whole earth. Aslan is on the move. I know this is a lot. Hang with me. Shortly after this, Jesus ascends to heaven and God pours out his Holy Spirit on all Christians. It's called Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts 2. And we learn that all Christians, the shorthand for which is the church, become filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul helps us piece together the rest of the story in 1 Corinthians with this one key verse. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Quick side note, by the way, three times he uses the word you, it's plural in each of those. So if Paul had been a good southerner, he would have written, don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and God's spirit lives in y'all? We are God's temple. We, the whole Bible tells the story that we are now God's presence in the world. It's been building up to this for all of history. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, Paul tells us, wherever we go, God is. 
so that God can fill the earth. That's exactly what what he's been longing for since the beginning of creation. God is now present in the whole world through the church. We are now the seam between heaven and earth. And our task, just like the ancient priests, and like Adam and Eve before them, is to work and keep all of creation so that God can be present. And whether you're in corporate finance, or whether you're a tradesperson, or retired, or you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're in school, whether you're in education, healthcare, like manufacturing, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is that we do, we bring the presence of God to our work because we are God's temple. See, the Holy of Holies now, the place where God is present, is actually no longer a place. It's a people. It's the church. And remember, the church is not a place. It's a people. And because the Holy of Holies and because God's presence is no longer confined to a place, then God is no more present in this room right now, in church, in air quotes, than he is with you when you're running errands at the supermarket or when you're stuck in traffic somewhere in town because there's construction on every single road in town right now or when you're in your office at work or when you're in your kid's bedroom as you're singing to them at night before bed whether you're in your doctor's office waiting on an appointment when you're out with your friends on the weekend, like wherever we are, there God is because we are the temple of God. We are the church. We are the presence of God. That's stunning. We don't go to church. We are the church. We don't go to temple. We are the temple. We are the seam between the holy and the ordinary. How does that flesh out in our work? Can you see where this is going? It's profound. It means nothing we do is insignificant. None of our work is insignificant. It all matters insofar as it's a way to bring God's presence where we are. Every week, later in the service again, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus Christ has come from heaven to earth to make it on earth as it is in heaven, and now he has called us to join him in his work of making all things on earth as it is in heaven. Christ longs to be in the seam. Christ is in you, and we are the seam. Therefore, Christ is in the seams. Amen.